is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on Africa News Tonight. Yeah, Al-Shabaab has been trying to disrupt uh, Somali elections. Uh, the leader of Al-Shabaab last year has issued an audio in which he directly threatened people who are participating in the elections. That was Harun Maruf with VOA Somali Service on Al-Shabaab's latest effort to derail the country's parliament and the long-delayed presidential election. Details coming up. Also, activists and journalists are raising questions about the death of Egyptian economist Ayman Hadhoud. These stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. In Mogadishu today, a mortar struck the grounds of Somalia's parliament as legislators were meeting in a joint session. Harun Maruf with VOA Somali Service tells my colleague Kate Bondawson the attack came as legislators were wrapping work on the schedule for electing the body's leaders and for selecting the country's president. Well, what happened is that the parliament was having a rare joint session by the lower house of the parliament and the upper house in order to vote on the rules of the procedures and the election procedures, the election of the leadership of the two chambers, uh, which is expected to take place next week. Uh, the house uh, passed these measures. They voted that on April 26, uh, the leadership election for the upper chamber will take place, and the following day, the lower chamber will have its election uh, for the speakers and two deputies. And then during the session, uh, one motor round landed in the grounds of the parliament, injuring seven people, two staffers, and seven security guards. There was just one mortar round. Is there any idea as to who fired it or where it came from? The Al-Shabaab militant group immediately claimed responsibility uh, for the attack. Uh, Al-Shabaab has been carrying out these mortar attacks for many years now. Uh, They have attacked uh, the parliament building before. They targeted... uh, the airport uh, on April 14th, while the parliamentarians were being sworn in, and today they targeted, so it appears organized uh, by the military group uh, to target the parliamentarians, which they believe to be, uh, which they accuse uh, of being uh, apostates and applying uh, laws that are not uh, uh, that are not uh, Allah's laws. And um, so they uh, they have not only targeted the lawmakers with mortars before, but they have also assassinated a number of uh, Somali lawmakers. They have also assassinated a number of electoral delegates who participated in the election of the Somali lawmakers. So they have a particular animosity uh, for the legislative branch of the Somali government. Does it look like the Al-Shabaab militants will try to interfere with the selection of the president, which I understand will be next month after Eid? 
Yeah, Al-Shabaab has been trying to disrupt uh, Somali elections. Uh, the leader of Al-Shabaab last year has issued an audio in which he directly threatened people who are participating in the elections. And Al-Shabaab is very strategic with its attacks when there is a lot of attention on elections because elections represent normalcy and people electing their representatives and the country moving forward. So they try to impose themselves, take some of the limelight and uh, um, present themselves as if they are saying, oh, we are also here, we can disrupt the normalcy. We are, uh, we are a strong force to reckon with. So they have been doing that for a number of years. And uh, it, it's very likely that uh, in the road to the election of the president and next month, they will continue to carry out this kind of attacks. That was VOA journalist Harun Maruf speaking with Kate Poundarson. He also said there have been at last four such mortar attacks against government targets in Mogadishu and the airport this year. Typically, he said the militants launch mortars from the back of trucks near the target and then quickly drive to hide the trucks in the neighborhoods. Rain continued to fall across South Africa's flood-ravaged KwaZulu-Natal province this weekend, disrupting search and rescue efforts. A storm last Monday dumped more than 300 millimeters of rain within 24 hours on the province's coastal region. Rain's fallen steadily since then. The government recorded almost 450 deaths so far. Scores who were swept away by floodwaters and buried in mudslides remain missing. Darren Taylor reports. There are a lot of mountains and deep valleys in KwaZulu-Natal, ensuring that rescue work is grim, says paramedic Candace Hrobler. As the mudslides have occurred, people have been entrapped in their houses and their houses have been washed down. Obviously with the flow of the water, with the mud and the rubble that has washed into the rivers, resulted in the bodies then going down with the currents and the turbulent water into the the ocean and then washing up on the, the beach. The South African Weather Service likened the storm to a cyclone unleashing three-quarters of the country's entire annual rainfall on KwaZulu-Natal's east coast in just one day. It says a catastrophe was thus unavoidable. But the provincial government acknowledges its disaster response teams weren't fully prepared to deal with the floods. Search and rescue and relief efforts have largely been managed by private emergency responders. Director of the Human Aid NGO, Ahmed Osman, spoke to reporters in Durban shortly after returning from a village he said floods had wiped off the earth. They actually described like a tsunami wave that came, a landslide that came down through a valley and swept hundreds of families. They Till today, they're digging for family members. I mean, it's a few days, it's almost a week, and we're still looking for bodies. So that gives you a sense of... Even government partners, such as South African Communist Party leader Soli Mapaila, say corruption and mismanagement are partly to blame for the scale of the tragedy. The government uh, response to this disaster 
it has been less than impressive, precisely because government has auctioned off the economy to the private people who have no respect for the well-being of others. Government needs to build basic capacity to respond to such kind of things uh, in communities. And the but the principal of the University of Johannesburg, Professor Chilidzi Marwala, says the states had almost three decades to do this. Instead, he says, some leaders of the ruling African National Congress have used public funds to enrich themselves, neglecting to equip disaster response teams and failing to maintain essential infrastructure. Walking to any of our downtowns, there's a lot of debt that is just piling and piling. What happens to that debt when the rain comes? Of course it is going to go into the drainage system. It means the drainage system does not work. It means that when you have floods, the impact of those floods on people's lives, on people's well-being, is going to be severely negative, and we need to do something about that. Civil society organizations and engineers say some of the death and destruction could have been prevented had the provincial government listened to experts when floods hit KwaZulu-Natal in 2017 and 2019. Urban planners advised local governments to stop people from building homes on hills and near rivers and to clear blocked drainage systems. To help the province, President Cyril Ramaphosa is releasing a billion rands, almost $70 million. But, says Marwala, the money is going to the same regional government that allegedly looted COVID pandemic relief funds. Whatever resources that are going to be put into place to rebuild KZN, they have to be used for rebuilding KZN, which basically means that our procurement must be as efficient as possible, which means that the amounts must not end up in people's pockets. And Good and, news and, is that the authorities have reopened the port of Durban and have found alternate routes for trucks allowing fuel, food and other essential items to reach victims. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Activists and journalists are raising questions about the death of Ayman Hadhud, an Egyptian economist, last month in a psychiatric hospital in Egypt. Social media posts are highlighting official contradictions in his disappearance two months ago. Reporter Angie Omar has more on the story. Two months after National Security Agency agents took Ayman Hadhud into custody, his family was notified he had died and they were to claim his body. The 40-year-old Hadhud was a prominent economic researcher and a co-founder and board member of the Liberal Reform and Development Party. His family last saw him alive on February 5th when he had dinner with his brother. According to the Committee for Justice Rights Group in Geneva, Hadhud's family had no official confirmation on where he was until the police Police notified them on April 9th that he had died a month earlier in the Abbasiya Psychiatric Hospital. Police say the delay in notifying the family about his death was because they didn't know how to locate his family. The Public Prosecutor's Office says a preliminary investigation showed there was no criminal suspicion in Hadhud's death. The prosecutor's report says Hadhud was arrested on February 6th after a building guard reported he was attempting to break into an apartment. The report says he displayed erratic behavior 
injured, and his speech was incomprehensible, so he was referred to a psychiatric hospital. His family has told rights groups that Hadhud had no history of mental illness. Muhammad Anwar Ismat al-Sadat is the founder of the Liberal Reform and Development Party and the former member of parliament. He says, while some activists say Hadhud was the victim of a forced disappearance, that is not clear. Sadat says there was an action from the hospital because when Hadhud's siblings went to the hospital to ask about him, the hospital denied he was there, and that's a responsibility. Moreover, Sadat says how could someone die in a hospital and be kept at a mortuary room without informing his family? That creates doubt on how he died. Sadat said there are unconfirmed reports that Hadhud was tortured. He says many people want to know the truth behind his arrest and death, and he is among them. Sadat asks what happened. What was Ayman's physical condition when he was admitted at the hospital? What was his exact state? He says they want to check the official papers and records. John Hirsch is a program director at the rights organization Democracy for the Arab World Now and led an investigation into Hadhud's death. Hirsch says there are contradictions in the information from the public prosecutor. The contradiction is obvious. Like first, the family was lied to again and again by the public prosecution. They even wouldn't let the family see him in the hospital because there was no record of him being arrested. And I think the two contradictions in these these two wild stories, um, you know, one suggesting that he was deranged and somehow breaking into a wealthy part of an apartment in a wealthy part of Cairo, and the other even more nonsensical that he was trying to steal a car a hundred kilometers from where he lived, just shows that something is obviously not being told the truth. Hirsch's report says it is not clear why officials might have targeted Hatoud as he wasn't politically active. On Friday, April 15th, the National Council for Human Rights in Egypt said that none of Hadhud's relatives submitted a complaint to the council's complaints office indicating that he had been subjected to forced disappearance. His family now is awaiting the results of a post-mortem examination of his body before a funeral can take place, hoping that the international attention to Hadhud's case will help them find out the truth. Angie Omar, for VOA News, Cairo. Tunisia will work with countries that have offered to help prevent environmental damage after a merchant ship carrying up to 1,000 tons of oil sank in an already polluted area. The defense ministry said yesterday the ship was heading from Equatorial Guinea to Malta when it sank 11 kilometers off the coast of the southern city of Gabes on Friday. The Tunisian Navy rescued all seven crew members following a distress call. Tunisian authorities have opened an investigation into the sinking, which the Environment Ministry said was caused by bad weather. The Gabes coast has suffered major pollution for years, uh, with environmental organizations saying industrial plants in the area have been dumping waste directly into the sea. In Zambia, commercial farmers are unsettled by rampant fuel hikes. They're urging government to consider subsidies to cushion the agriculture sector, fearing that fertilizers and other inputs will equally skyrocket. But the Zambian government, which recently refused to remove taxes from petroleum products, blames the increase on the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. 
from Lusaka. Reporter Elias Limoanya sent this report. Commercial farmers say they are struggling to cope with price hikes for fuel and imports. On April 14th, fuel was increased to $1.40 per liter from $1.13, a move farmers say is not sustainable for the agriculture sector, which was recently hit by flash floods. Ruth Hansen is a farmer in Zambia's southern province, which produces over 70% of maize, the country's staple food. The, the impact is going to be felt quite strongly, I think, on fertilizer and fuel. The biggest opportunity is for, for people to go organic. Then we don't need to worry about the price of fertilizer. The government needs to take some of what they were spending on a fertilizer subsidy and invest it into organic training, starting with the extension officers and then on to farmers. Dr. Frank Kayula is the executive director of the National Smallholder Association of Farmers in Zambia. He says while the impact may not be felt now, the war between Russia and Ukraine is likely to have a harmful effect on the country's farmers. Ukraine alone contributes about 50% of fertilizer to the world market, most of which is supplied to Africa. Meanwhile, Russia is the largest supplier of natural gas and accounts for about half of all nitrogen and potassium fertilizer used by farmers. Dr. Kayola says the war is a setback. These have an impact on the cost of production in Zambia. The farmers are getting inputs that are being transported by this transport system which are using fuel which has gone up. And at the same time, when you look at the increasing prices uh, globally, we know now that uh, our, uh, the cost of our fertilizer in Zambia will be very, very expensive, beyond 1,700 kwacha uh, per pocket. That's huge uh, price. Chance Kabaye is the executive director at the Indawa Agriculture Policy Research Institute in Lusaka. He says policymakers need to come up with alternatives to offset the high price of commodities as a result of the war. Various countries are having similar discussions all over the world. And this is but the beginning of serious discussions in the food industry. And what really should we put in place as a country um, in the impact of this war on food security? Recently, the Minister of Agriculture, Ruben Piri, called for quick solutions to issues affecting the sector, including more investment in local fertilizer production. We have a lot of aggregates in our country. We have a lot of phosphorus in our country. We are encouraging you to bring machinery to start crushing and making fertilizer within the borders of Zambia. We could not be comparatively have the advantage to compete with large-scale uh, you know, uh, production, but I think a start is important. Rinik Mapanza heads one of the largest farmers' cooperatives in the country. The challenge is imminent and very serious. Most, most of our small-scale farmers, I think, they won't share this a lot. The majority, I think, of the farmers that they are co-op destroyed. Hence, I think there's a reduction in selected areas, which are the ones we normally, but I think this year they just dropped to 30%. For now, many farmers are hoping that the government does not again raise the price of fuel in its regular monthly review. Some observers say an increase could adversely affect food production and hunger in the country.
for VOA Africa. I'm Elias Limonya in Lusaka, Zambia. Every year, Muslim Americans donate millions of dollars to Islam-based charities in the United States during the holy month of Ramadan. The religion stipulates that Muslims must donate 2.5% of their wealth once a year to help the poor and needy, a process called zakat, an Arab term meaning that which purifies. The Muslim American Society is a religious, educational, social, charitable, grassroots organization in the state of Virginia. While charity is a major practice of the organization, it becomes a priority during the month of Ramadan. The month of Ramadan is one of the blessed months in Islam. That's the month where Muslims pay zakah for their money, for their wealth, that their annual zakah on their money. In addition to that, Prophet Muhammad taught us that giving to charity, not only in the month of Ramadan, but throughout the year. And we learned that Prophet Muhammad he was the most generous in the month of Ramadan. And that's why most Muslims are really trying to follow the steps of our beloved Prophet Muhammad So how do charity contributions are collected by Muslim organizations in the U.S.? Most of it is really happening in the masajid and through the organizations. We leverage the technology nowadays. For example, we have online campaigns. We also leverage the tools of people paying through credit card, cash, reaching out in massive campaign through software, also during salah, in Jum'ah prayer, and also during taraweeh, during the last 10 nights of Ramadan. We ask people for donation for specific cause, for example, to provide iftar, to help the orphans, not only within the United States, but also overseas. We try to help as much as we can across the globe. With inflation and a tough job market in the United States, did charity collections suffer a decline? Actually, did not. I'm really just amazed. The people are continuing to giving to charity, continue to help. Yes, I understand inflation is big, but people still have jobs and the people who still have the will and beliefs that helping others, that is really helping themselves. So uh, we really not seeing an impact. Actually, on the contrary, we see more people are giving, not to help just uh, the local community, but the community at large. With the flow of Afghan refugees to the United States, does the center give them a priority in charity giving? Many organizations provided services, provided with campaign collections towards our brother and sister that arrived from Afghanistan. I know there was a collection of new clothes, food in many centers. You know, I can name a few of them like Adam Center, like Darul Hijra. So there is a lot of organization really try to help, to help them to adjust, but at least provide them the means to live day by day. Poverty does not know religion. When you are hungry, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Do Muslim Americans give charity to some non-Muslim poor? Oh, absolutely. I'll give you just an example of a Muslim American society, our mass, our community center, for example, that I volunteer there. We have every Wednesday, and I know that Al-Hajra does, I know that Adam Center does, those are the big ones. For example, every Wednesday we have our food bank, and our food bank, anybody can come in. We provide them with bread, egg, meat, vegetables, fruits. 
And anybody can come in in and and collect. We see a lot of our brothers and sisters in humanity, Latinos. We see white, we see black. We see a lot of people coming in. They come through. It's a drive-through. They collect the food they want and they go. We don't ask any question if you're Muslim or non-Muslim or whatever, as long as you have a need for food and we provide it to you. And that's the teaching of Islam, that you give the people who is in need and the hungry and you keep an eye on your neighbor regardless of their faith. And our communities and our and all the Muslim organizations, they do the same thing. Salah Ahmed, an active volunteer with the center, explained to VOA senior analyst Muhammad al-Shanawi why Ramadan represents the top month of charity for Muslims. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight on Yehiyas Wuhid in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America.